Welcome to the People Teaching People podcast. My name is Tiana Fesh. I'm a mom of three, an educator, a course development consultant, and a lifelong learner. Teaching and learning can take place anytime, anywhere, and in a multitude of ways. The range of knowledge and skills to teach and to learn about are truly limitless. But at the heart of all teaching and learning experiences are the people. The People Teaching People podcast is the place to talk about the who, what, when, where, why, and how of teaching and learning in a world where there is always more to discover. Education plays an important and integral role in all facets of our lives. How we work, do business, live, play, explore, and build relationships. Let's talk teaching and learning together. Welcome to the People Teaching People podcast. Joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Marnie Ginsberg. Experiences with her own students led Dr. Marnie down a path of discovering how to better support students with reading. You will love this conversation with Marnie where we really dive into both the art and science of teaching. Dr. Marnie is the founder of Reading Simplified, whose mission is to support busy, overwhelmed teachers learn a research-based system of effective and efficient instruction that accelerates all students' reading achievement. Marnie's surprise at finding so many of the middle school students in her classroom reading well below their grade level spurred a passion for finding and disseminating solutions. What followed included private tutoring, university research, the creation of an evidence-based reading program, and ultimately the development of Reading Simplified. Thank you so much for joining me today, Marnie. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tiana. Thank you. So I always like to start with my guests to learn more about them and their stories. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about your journey and what really led you to doing the work that you're doing today. Mm -hmm. Well, looking backward, it seems like it's all very clear and makes total sense. But of course, I didn't know where I was headed as a public school teacher in my 20s. I was teaching high school, mostly middle school. And in my second placement in, in North Carolina, I found out that my sixth grade students were reading at the fourth grade level. And I realized I didn't know how to teach them, even though I had a master's. So that's really what started my career, 20 plus year career, career since then, kind of obsessing about how to find the most efficient and effective ways to teach anyone how to read. So those sixth grade kids, I tested little things out with them. I read widely to try to find answers. And this, this is in the late 90s. It was, it was very common for there to be contradictory approaches, whole language or more of a phonics approach. And nobody would even claim that, the, that they could catch kids up. And I just kind of thought, I just expected that they should be able to read, read the words. Because that's where really where the breakdown was. They would, I listened to them and, you know, they got to a word like terrible and they start, they start with a T sound and then they might come up with Titanic or, you know, something completely unrelated because they, they had no word attack skills. So I got really desperate when I was given an, an inclusion year with two kids that couldn't even read at the first grade level. 
And they'd been in school seven years, basically. And they were non-readers. And I stumbled upon this book called Reading Reflex. It was on the end caps at Barnes and Noble. And after a lots of looking, that was a great relief. I just kind of knew when I read it, oh, like this is the missing thing. It was definitely going to be teaching them decoding using phonics, but also tuning their ear into hearing the individual sounds and words, which is called phonemic awareness, which um, I now know reading researchers have indicated is a strong marker of what allows for a child to succeed early in their word reading journey. And also it's highly teachable. So those two kids got great success and they moved up over three years with me just kind of catching them, catch as catch can before, during and after school. And that made me realize this is, there is a problem that I didn't know what to do. And I'm not alone. There's a lot of teachers like me. So I wanted to do just focus on helping kids get to be able to read well. And so I tutored for a long time, had really outstanding results with that, that were different from what I was seeing around me in a whole language and then balanced literacy environment. So I went to the University of North Carolina to learn more. And while I was there, I had the strange opportunity to um, lead the development of an intervention. A professor gotten this large grant from the federal government and she was a language person, but she needed a reading person to develop it. So uh, in the end, mostly um, I, I did that. It, it became known as the targeted reading intervention. There have been multiple journal articles about it. We get effect sizes of 0. 0.3 to 0. 0.7. It's on the What Works Clearinghouse. The, the federal government has given more money to other researchers to continue discovering what's how how it could impact people. It has begun in low-income rural communities, and we were seeing these struggling readers, kindergarten and first grade kids, succeed. And so that was great. Along the way, I got to watch the teachers teach. It was technologically driven long before Zoom. We were watching them with their struggling reader and giving them coaching. And so I, I learned a lot. We saw great results, except that it just didn't spread anywhere. And this is so common when you read research. It's like, oh, these are interesting findings from these people at a university, but nobody's doing it in the schools. And so when my husband moved us from North Carolina to Wisconsin for his job, it seemed like a good time to try something new. And I developed a more grassroots approach to try to reach teachers who were look who were like me, who wanted to see change for their students. And that became Reading Simplified. So that's a streamlined approach for teaching teachers how to teach reading in a streamlined way, and then also see their students accelerate in their reading instruction. And we do that through a Reading Simplified Academy, which is an online membership where teachers can learn at their own pace, but then they also get coaching from us in a discussion board that we call the the Teacher's Lounge. And we've had over 12,000 teachers do that. So it's been really gratifying. It's kind of scratched that itch that I had once I realized, wait a minute, why, how could I with so little knowledge or even effort, how can I solve this, these kids' problems or at least go a long way to solving those first two kids' problems, but then the rest of the world is just really was going in a different direction and a lot of kids are frustrated with reading. Here in the U.S., we have kind of scary sh- stat that's been going the rounds lately that 67% of American fourth graders are not proficient in reading. And I think Canada is not so badly off, bad off, but it's not outstanding for any English speaking country. It may be except England. It's getting better, but we've got some work to do. And that's what I'm part of. I'm enjoying being part of that. Well, that's 
such an incredible story because in you really getting to know and connecting with the students in your own classroom, you identified a need. And then your curiosity led you to create a solution. And now the way that you've set things up in empowering other teachers who are also curious and seeking those solutions, the impact that you're made, making is immense in really making a difference for teachers to develop that those skills, that understanding, that confidence to support their students, but then also all the students that they touch and interact right. with. That's incredible. That's my dream. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you're well on your way and make it, you've made a huge difference already and are continuing to do so. And it's funny that you mentioned Canadian statistics because I did get a little bit curious about that and, and what's sort of happening in Canada. And I was looking around and I couldn't find anything particularly recent, but I was looking on the Statistics Canada website and 2013, so that's 10 years ago, with adults, they more than one in six adult Canadians fell short on passing the most basic literacy tests. So then mm -hmm. that speaks to things that are being missed along the way as right. students are moving through school. So it was along with that math and problem solving, reading is obviously a huge piece of literacy and, mm -hmm. and that's concerning. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it, it kind of brings up the question with the students in your class, how did they kind of continue along in their journey and come to you not being able to read in the ways that they should be, right? And, and you were able to get to know them, understand that something wasn't correct, and then provide some intervention and support to really make that difference for them. So it, it, it is definitely an issue here in Canada as well. Mm -hmm. And I guess question for you, because this is not an area of my expertise, but just even in your opinion, in the research and the work that you've done, what do you think are some of the main factors that are contributing to this problem? And what are some things that educators and parents need to be doing and, and thinking about? Well, tragically, a lot of the reason that students are struggling with how to learn to read in the English speaking world is because the adults have made choices about their instruction that are foolish. We've known for about 40 years and with, with each decade with increasing certainty, some basics about how the brain learns to read the, the brain needs to transform those squiggles on the page, get the concept that that's a code and it's a code for sounds. Those sounds are, things that we already use when we're speaking. And so a five-year-old child may know 5,000, 10,000 words, maybe more. They know the sounds of their language. They know the meaning of their language. And all that learning to read does when we do it well is co-opt that language system and build another set of neural processes on top of it and link all of those. So we need to draw students' attention to their the sounds and the words that they speak, like I mentioned earlier, the phonemic awareness, so that they hear that the word cat is k. And so then they can map that onto those little squiggles, which we call C-A-T. That's how our code works. That is also how the brain goes through the early stages of learning to read. And so that would mean cats, obviously a very simple answer. 
a simple example, but in the word show, it's four letters, but it's just two sounds. We have to understand that sh is the SH and O is the OW. This understanding allows us to, as a beginner, attack the word show. Oh, show. And then when we read that word a couple more times, literally, it could be as few as one to four with many, many kids. That word becomes a, a word that we recognize for the rest of our lives. And we cannot not read it, even if someone puts it in front of us, unless there's a significant brain injury. And so that is that accomplishment of getting to that spot where you can recognize a huge number of words in a split second is an amazing gift that we are able to do. Because if we couldn't read words really rapidly, reading would be much more laborious for the to comprehend what the writer is saying. It would take a lot more effort if we, if we weren't quickly accessing those words as, as we do. We access them so quickly. And that the fact that we access them quickly is really why we've been having, one of the reasons we've been having debates about how kids should be taught to read because it looks like a good reader reads it just in by sight. And that is true, but they didn't start there. A good reader starts by sound, connecting sounds and symbols, decoding. And to some extent, it can be laborious at the beginning. And then when we, as quickly as we can get them into real text, they start to figure out more and more of the code themselves. And they, there's like a, an exponential curve in their acquisition of how this code works after those slow early days of at, then they really pick up phonics. They really start to pick up words as holes and recognize them in a split second. They become fluent and then they can read widely and learn more about the world. That is one of the major flaws in our university preparation in almost all English speaking countries. And I, it's a complex and it, and if you haven't looked into it, it might be hard to believe, but I encourage your audience to listen to the work of Emily Hanford. She's an American journalist who has done a, a number of audio documentaries and also a more recent short podcast series called Sold a Story. And that's the premise of that is that we, uh, teachers like myself, we were sold a story about how to teach kids to read and it wasn't true. And it's out of alignment with the science and we need to move more towards the science. And that is her work along with other people's work. But she had a, she was a major catalyst for starting what's called the science of reading movement. And a lot of that does involve those beginning stages with how the brain learns to read words and attack unfamiliar words. There's more to it than that because nobody, uh, scientists haven't studied anything in social science more than reading. It's psychologists, neurologists, doctors, speech paths, special education. A lot of people just love this topic. And there are thousands of articles. No one could really understand all of it. But there is, like I said, there is a convergence and we need to be pay, pay, paying better attention to it. Well, as a former science teacher, the science ah. of anything intrigues me. I love to see the evidence behind things and that scientific process being applied mm -hmm. to things. We're not just saying something works, we're exploring it and, and getting that scientific evidence. So that is so interesting. And I know, you know, shifting the way that we think about things or just learning new things in general can be fun and exciting but it can also be challenging and frustrating. Yeah. And I'm wondering, 
what are some of the innovative and practical ways to make reading instruction fun, effective, and engaging for students? Mm -hmm. Well, I think students find reading engaging when they are successful at it. So if I like to get them successful really rapidly, so that's like a, a major principle. I also like to change up activities when I'm working with kids, when it is the more laborious stage, move quickly between activities. And that just tends to help. So before they have time to get bored, we're already swapping out that activity for something else where they do something slightly different. Also with reading simplified, we've, we've relied on a handful of word work activities to teach that decoding that tend to be pretty engaging. The most powerful one is a great for anyone who has a beginning student or, or if you have an older reader who's kind of struggling, we call it switch it. And it really does that beginning work that I was talking about, like helping the brain orient towards sounds and symbols and how they line up. So if you can imagine a, like the back of a dry erase board with some lines on the bottom to represent sounds for each one, each position in a word, and then you got some letter sound cards at the top, just enough to make a few words in a word chain and say they have the word slap and you say, and you drag your finger across the bottom and, and pointing to each S L A P letter sound card. Okay. You have the word slap. How would you change it to slip? And so that's paired contrast, making them tune into the differences that they hear that are in the inside parts of words, which are hard for the beginning kid to read. You and I, as readers, we immediately are actually thinking S-L-A-P. And you, when I say slap, slip, you're actually using letters to help you figure out what sounds I'm talking about. That's the brain re recycling we want the and reprocessing that we want the child to develop so they move slap to slip okay yeah you, we don't need that ah what do we put there we put the eh. which one of these is eh? yeah drag it down and say eh. now check the sounds slip. okay slip let's change it to slit there's a slit in the door in the door that i can see a light coming through how do you change slip to slit yeah, we need to get rid of that t, put in a p. And you change every position in the word. You could do it with three sound words for beginners. Change sat to cat and or sat to sit and sit to sip and sip to chip because ch ch would be on one card because it's one sound and that's how the brain's figuring out, oh, this is how the code works. And with, a, with an older student, I might do stomp to stump to slump. And even harder, we could do nonsense words. Okay, you have spliss. Can you change it to splash? Can you change it to slant? Can you change it to sprant and sprunt? And even though it's doing phonics and phonemic awareness and teaching the alphabetic principle, how that our written code is, our language is a written code of representing by represented by sounds. It's, it's somehow fun for the students and they will say, oh, I want to play that game again. So anytime you can find a highly educational activity that kids call a game, you've got a winner. So that, that's one thing that we do, not only to help inspire kids, but also it's a, a way for us to offer teachers a gentle entree into a different approach. For instance, if they've been in a whole language or balanced literacy world where the code was kind of minimized or put on the back shelf, this is an activity to make them realize it can be fun. It doesn't mean that children are 
drill being drilled and killed. <laughs> and then, then they see quick progress. That's fantastic. I love, you know, gamification, of course, anything that's presented as a challenge or a game gets children and adults more interested, I think, mm -hmm. rather than just sort of information coming at them. It's a problem right. to solve. Right. And as you mentioned to those little wins, right? If, if, if the goal or the win is going to be after, you know, hurting your brain, I think one of my kids at school, they would have these math challenges and they were actually called like hurt your brain math. So if it's like hurt your brain reading and they're struggling <laughs> through and they're not experiencing those little wins, you're not uh, chunking that information or scaffolding the process. Right. It can be so overwhelming and difficult. So those are fantastic strategies to, to keep in mind. And I love how they're such a big part of the program that you've created and how you're supporting both teachers and students and putting things into practice. Now, in your experience, I'm sure you come across some common misconceptions about reading instruction. And you've sort of mentioned how mm -hmm. um, in the learning that teachers have when they're going through their education program, they've maybe learned about or experienced things, experienced things that are not the most effective ways to support students. So what are some ideas or thoughts that you have about how educators and parents can address some of these things to improve their own teaching practices? And then of course, ultimately student outcomes. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the two biggest ideas Reading science has shown us that, that our kind of general understanding and typical educational practices out of alignment with are how to teach kids to crack the code to read words and then how to become a good at comprehension. So we talked already about the importance of teaching kids the skills of decoding and how it much it depends on them perceiving the sounds and words, matching it up with print and practicing that, getting feedback, like I was talking about maybe a little bit with a, you know, slip and slit and slap example. And that's what we actually ex are experts on at Reading Simplified, that, that pathway moving towards fluency. But the other paradigm that needs to be shifted is that being a good reader means you have really good strategies. Yeah, it actually does. Good readers do have good strategies, but the hallmark of good readers, besides the fact that they recognize words in a split second, is that they know a lot of stuff. And our schools have not been systematically building knowledge because reading particularly has been thought of as a skill where you practice a skill or a strategy, like we're going to learn how to summarize. And today I will summarize something on the rainforest a little passage on that. Tomorrow we might summarize about the continents of the world. On the, another day, we're going to practice summarizing about Benjamin Franklin. And there's no coherence in the knowledge and there's no knowledge building because it's thought that summarize, summarization is um, something you can just learn once or learn over, you know, maybe several weeks or months, and then you just take it with you and go to every topic. Well, actually, when you read something that is unfamiliar, you can comprehend it better if you have a lot of little bits of knowledge that help feed into that particular paper or, or story or book. If I was to read something in physics right now, my comprehension would be poor. It doesn't mean I'm not a good reader, it just means I don't know much about physics. 
So we should, we really need to change both major things in the way we teach kids how to read and what we spend our time in, particularly in elementary and middle school. It should be about systematically building knowledge and strategies do help. We want to, we want to talk kids through these things. Summarization is like, we do that in every lesson in Reading Simplified. It's not, I don't mean to put it on the back burner, but it's, it can only go as far as the child's brain has knowledge. You cannot, if, if every sentence has a word you don't know the meaning of, you're going to have a really hard time summarizing that passage. And probably more importantly, you're not going to read it. <laughs> you won't want to read it. You won't read a lot of it. You, you know, <laughs> so there's this positive snowball that kicks in. If you are, know some stuff and you know the, how to read words, then you're going to be more likely to read more and read more. And then that just keeps building. And the opposite of course is true. If the words are hard or you just don't know a lot of them, the concepts or the vocabulary, then you're going to read less and less. And it just keeps getting worse because you don't know the words and then you don't know their meanings. And so those are two big ideas that could definitely help teachers. It could definitely help parents. And even if you want to expand your reading and learn more about the world, consider, is it, is it recognizing the words or do you want to just build your knowledge and maybe you want to build knowledge in a particular area? And that's, that's what I'd love to see teachers doing for students and, and parents doing for children. Let's study about the industrial revolution and read fiction and nonfiction about the industrial revolution for a, a season. And there's a theme to that and there all the vocabulary and the concepts and the, the people you are connected in a network in your brain. And so, and then you, take some of that when to when you learn about um, a major war like World War One. Some of those things kind of connect and, and it all builds a, a fabric of knowledge that enables you to understand what you're reading in the Washington Post or something more challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. The reading comprehension piece can really be a barrier for students as well, as you said. And I was just thinking, as you mentioned, opening up a physics textbook, it would take me forever to get through that personally. I was a biology chemistry teacher and yeah, physics was not in my wheelhouse. So if it's not a knowledge area that you're familiar with, you're right, the language and, and sort of the context and the concepts are just going to make that an impossibly frustrating task to work through and to, and to try to struggle through. So thinking about those two pieces of the puzzle is absolutely important. Now, many students do struggle with reading and dyslexia can add an additional layer to mm -hmm. the struggles that students can have. So are there any effective strategies or interventions that educators and parents could employ to support struggling readers and really help them to thrive? Yes, absolutely. And researchers have done some amazing work demonstrating that even some significantly challenged readers with this dyslexia labels and have, who have struggled for years with sufficient intense instruction by expert practitioners, they can get to grade level. And so that we have studies, experimental studies where 70 hours or 130 hours, sometimes more of instruction, either in a small group or one-on-one, -on -one, gets kids out of that fifth percentile, 10th percentile into like the 30, the high thirties and 40th percentile, which would be in the low average range. So it's doable. Um, but most of our systems are not set up to solve that problem. 
And so it'd be great if we caught kids early because there's no need to wait until they fail, until they've proven that they are failing. We have some better and better tools each year to figure out even as early as kindergarten, if not earlier, that this child is more likely to struggle with reading. So they should get better intervention with more intensity. And kind of like I mentioned before, it's going to probably be in one or two major domains. It's a lot of kids, particularly if they have the label dyslexia, they have a sound-based decoding difficulty. So when I said, you know, change stomp to stump, that would stump them. <laughs> it would be harder for them because they don't process those sounds really as quickly as a good reader. And so we need to dig right into that. And that's what we do with Reading Simplified. We kind of excel at developing sound-based decoding to, to excellence. And it just takes longer with a student who has dyslexia. But at the same time, we know there are many students that have language processing issues or lack of knowledge. So what what is the comprehension, the language comprehension, the linguistic comprehension side of things that 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 they may struggle with? And how can we improve that? So if there's just not been a lot of exposure to rich language or books, then they might have vocabularies that are limited. So then you'd want to do a lot of vocabulary building. You could do that through books and connected texts or themes. You could do it through dialogue where you challenge them to have more intellectual conversations using the and listening to your more sophisticated language. Certainly writing is a very good way to fold in not vocabulary knowledge. But then there are other students that have what's known as developmental language disorder, which is less known, but it's still a good chunk of kids might just be weaker at processing language. So they may be less likely to understand the inferences in the, the other kids can make about a story. They may not be able to process a list of five or six tasks they were supposed to do. So the that's where a speech and language pathologist would be really helpful if, especially if the student gets a diagnosis to get that type of therapy, or if it's maybe not that severe, if you can get some suggestions for how to build that, that is also something that can be improved through intervention, whether through the expert or, you know, parent just trying to build up the language system. And if nothing else, one of the best ways to build up the language system is to read to kids from challenging books. You can, as a rule of thumb, you could probably read a book that's two years above their grade level to most kids and talk about it and ask them questions about it. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Having worked with young kiddos with developmental delays, those early interventions just make such a world of difference for kids and for families and really setting them up for success. And it's, I know it can be challenging sometimes with like the systems and the oh, supports yes. that are made available to kids and families. But the difference I think it makes in the long term in really setting the stage so that they can move forward and then require less intervention as they're moving along is is so key. Um, you can, yeah. I mean, I think I saw one statistic where if you catch it, the reading difficulty in like kindergarten, it's four, it, it's like four year, four years less effort <laughs> than if you catch it later or four times. I can't remember what I was glancing at, but it's just, if you catch it early, it's so much different than if it's later. It's such a waste of human ca capital when we just drag kids along with a struggle in language or literacy, when those are the 
essential elements of succeeding in school, which allows them to succeed in life. Yeah. And it, and I think it goes along too with so many other things, right? Like thoughts and feelings about school and learning. Right. Your overall mm-hmm. just well being, sense of self. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it really can have far reaching impact beyond the, the reading experience itself, just in all aspects of, of being a learner and being a part of school and, and just their sense of who they are and, and how exactly. they feel about how they can do things. Now, as a teacher, it's being a teacher is a complex, interesting, wonderful, all the things type of profession. And teaching has often been described as being both an art and a science. And how we talked a little bit about this, but how do you feel that reading instruction specifically is both an art and a science? Well, the science, I, I hope I kind of made the pitch there for science Absolutely. in the beginning. We do yes. know a lot about how the brain learns to read. And there's experiments that have shown, for instance, just like explicitly teaching phonics or just kind of reading a lot to kids. Reading a lot to kids ain't going to cut it. You have to teach them how the code works. We know this through experiments and brain scans and from multiple fields. So that's, that's an example. Of, there's other examples of something that's kind of well-known, but that doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do with Molly on Monday or Tommy on Tuesday. (laughs) I mean, there has to be an element of us allowing for the art of teacher insight, the context of the situation. This is second grade and the child is a little old for their age and they are, this is their reading problem. And there's so many variables that when we're dealing with humans. So I think the science and art conversation is important as we elevate the science of reading movement in this country. We need to understand that there is a really strong number of positions that one can take that are in alignment with the science. And we have a history of not doing that. But at the same time, science has not given us a recipe for every child on every day and, you know, open up your book and this is what you do on Monday. So we still need to balance the assuredness of science with the awareness that wise teachers are adapting to meet their children's needs and parents as well. None, most parents can probably attest to the fact that they don't treat their firstborn exactly the same way they treat their thirdborn. It's not because they're being unfair. It's because each child has unique needs at different times of their lives. And so that's the art part. Yeah. And I think, you know, just thinking back to your story and what you're sharing about getting to know your students the art is really in building those relationships and establishing those connections and getting to know the kiddos in your class. And, you know, Monday might not be a good day for them. And maybe Tuesday's better because we all have our own stories and contexts and bigger picture that we're bringing with us. And definitely there are some amazing teachers out there who just really do get to know their kids and have really you know, in many ways, mastered that art of building those connections and then applying that great science of teaching instruction with, with it's the a kids tricky that balance. working with. Such a tricky balance. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And then we're going through our own things as well as teachers, right? <laughs> well, There's especially in this, if, if they're particularly the science of reading movement is hitting the elementary teachers, particularly K2, yeah. but it's not just them, but it's hitting them really hard. They're in the middle of teaching and they're supposed to be upskilling into like a, 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 a pro, an approach that's 180 degrees from what they've always been told. It's very daunting. Yeah. So they need to have grace for themselves and then know that they're some of the things that they learned were certainly good along the way and they can trust their gut to some extent, you know, as they also learn more about how the, how reading develops in the, in this example. Yeah. And, and just like yourself, and you know, it really speaks to how those fantastic teachers are really those lifelong learners, right? They're, they're living the teaching experience day to day, but they still have that curiosity to want to learn more and do better. And, and really challenge themselves to work with their students in the best way possible with, you know, new knowledge, new opportunities, new ideas that are coming to them, which is hard because it can be easier just to keep doing the same thing. <laughs> but it, it, in many ways, it can be harder to not because you're not making the difference or seeing the impact that you're seeking. So it's great that you're providing that incredible support to teachers and creating that community for them where they can, you know, as you said, there's a bit of a forum so that they can ask their questions mm -hmm. and, and support one another there, as well as getting that, you know, solid scientifically backed information and those strategies to be able to work with their teachers. So a question about you, I want you to think about or, or share with me, who is a favorite teacher of yours? Or what is a learning experience that really impacted you in some way? And why does that person or experience really stand out for you? Mm -hmm. I have a couple of, you know, elementary, middle and high school teachers that were really prof uh, a, prof a profound influence on my life. And academically, I can just see how much I benefited particularly, but also their example of what it means to be a good teacher. So my math teacher, my freshman and sophomore year for algebra and geometry was Mrs. Barrington. And she just loved, seemed as if she loved math, loved teaching it and could find a way to relay the information to people who didn't like me, didn't really like it that much and learn it. But she also cared for the individual and she had high expectations. It's like a it's like throwing all those things in the pot and coming out with something really that tastes delicious in the end is tricky. Like how do you have high expectations and be compassionate for children who are dropping the ball? So I learned math really well and I actually did well in my math, my SAT in math, even though, like I said, it's not really the thing I like. <laughs> and I, I give her a lot of credit for that. But also I saw that example of just the passion for pedagogy Mm -hmm. and pedagogy and people. Yeah, the two together. Absolutely. And it sounds like in the work that you're doing and in the work that you've done as a, a teacher as well, her example really influenced the way that you approach your own teaching and working with students and, and with your, your coaching as well which is the impact of teachers often goes far beyond the experience itself. Indeed. Now, when you look back at your journey, so it's been interesting to learn more about it and how you've come to be where you are. What is something that you're most proud of? Well, building Reading Simplified from nothing, I had no business background and that it works, what is really, really 
what I'm most proud of because 20 years ago when I taught those kids how to read and then I started tutoring and I was teaching kids left and right, nobody cared what I had to say. (laughs) So persuading other people and then having them not only accept your ideas and then implement it and get results, that's been 20 years plus of trying to figure that out, (laughs) you know? And so I had to figure out how to create a business, how to market, how to persuade people, and then also make sure that I didn't overwhelm them and it was really simplified. How could you, but it's, you know, there's actually a famous statement that says teaching reading is rocket science. (laughs) So how, if, when, if it's that complex, how can you actually reduce it for people that are in the Cook Islands or California or Canada? And I don't know them and I can still reach them through this online portal and, and then they get results that that's kind of like a delivery dissemination dream, really, I guess, because the previous thing I had done at, like I said, at the University of North Carolina, it was, it was great to see what that, that impact was and in those schools, but it just didn't spread beyond those schools. So how do you get an idea out of, of something that's efficacious and then scale it? And that's still ongoing, but so far it's been really a pleasure because every day we, we get multiple anecdotes from teachers saying something as simple as like, oh my gosh, switch it, totally turn my student on to this, or no, I spent four months and now my kid's reading, you know, what, whatever it is that they are on in their journey, they're getting these results and it's really gratifying. And it all started with something that you were identifying, observing, experiencing in your classroom. Yes. And now it's making a difference for others. So that that's incredible. Mm-hmm. I have a few rapid fire questions for you. So the first is, what is something that you would love to learn about or something that you would love to learn to do? Oh, I keep having this vision that I'm going to relax by crocheting, but I can't get there. (laughs) Something is always interfering. So that's, that's my next hobby I need to pick up. What is a place that is at the top of your travel bucket list? Hmm. I would love to take an Alaskan cruise and see the glaciers and haven't been out on the Northwest coast of the of North America. That would be beautiful. What is a book, podcast, movie, or a TV show that you've enjoyed recently? Well, I'm just going to second my pitch. Please go listen to Sold a Story. Everyone who's concerned about education and the, the future of our citizenry should listen to it. But my, I'm, I think I really, really enjoyed a Netflix TV show ca- called Extraordinary Attorney Woo, I think is what it was called. It's a Korean drama. I had never seen one before. And she's autistic and she's also a, award-winning like at the top of her class in law school and she starts her law career what an interesting setup and it was very interesting for me my daughter is going to law school too so it seems timely for me to watch that and to see the interesting perspective of a, a, an autistic person in, in, interacting in society but succeeding yeah, I've not heard of that one, so I'll need to check that out. I'm sorry, I don't probably have the title perfectly right, but I'm sure you can get it with Extraordinary and Attorney Woo. Okay, I will find it. Make <laughs> sure that we have it correctly identified. And if you could sit down and have a conversation with someone that you would love to learn from, who would it be and why? Well, I love the 
reading researchers that I've been following and citing and learning from for now over 20 years. So Keith Stanovich had a huge influence on my thinking. He's not even doing reading research anymore. And David Scher is another one that did came up with the idea about self-teaching, which is kind of what I hinted at earlier. You teach the kids enough of the code and then there's like an explosion if you've given them the proper skills of them just putting things together themselves. Those are some really big ideas that I've tried to fold into a reading simplified. So it'd be fun to chat with them more and learn more deeply. And I bet they would love to hear about all that you've done because of the ideas and inspiration that you've, they've, they've shared and that you've got curious about. And I wanted to ask you sort of my last question is I always think about education just being such an important and integral part of every facet of our lives. So how we work and we live and we play and explore. So I'm just wondering if you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom to share that could empower or support people on their own teaching and learning journeys. That's kind of deep. (laughs) It's a big question. (laughs) It's I'm going to be redundant here, but I hope you have caught the, the idea from me from the last few minutes we've been together that reading is an essential and expansive part of our lives. So even if you don't like those fiction books, your third grade teacher read to you, don't give up. There is something out there for everyone to continue their learning And if it's hard for you, you can probably even get help for that to solve the part that's hard. It doesn't have to be hard for for everyone. And and audiobooks are a great workaround if you're busy and you can listen on the go and they can be inexpensive and you can get them from your library and learn about people besides yourself and beside your own community. So that leads you to be a better more compassionate person. And also it gives you so many ways of in which you can improve your career or help build up the people in your family. So please, if you're not a voracious reader, reconsider that. I love that. I love that. So Marnie, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and words of wisdom with us today. If our listeners want to learn more about you and all the things that you're up to, where are the best places to find you? Definitely at readingsimplified.com. You can find out a little bit more about me, sign up for anything there. We have lots of gifts for people to want to test out these activities like Switch It and and those emails would come to me. So we also are in lots of social networks like Facebook and Instagram and a little bit on Twitter. If you want to try out Switch It, you could go to readingsimplify.com forward slash switch dash it and you could see examples of it in practice and you can get word lists, sample word lists, and how to's. And just go play that game with a five year old who's just learning, or a four year old who's just learning, or an older student who is really frustrated about reading. They may have a way of, that may have a way of unlocking some about how the code works for them. That's fantastic. I'll make sure to share all that in the show notes. Thank you, Thank you so much for joining me, Marnie. It was really nice to connect with you and to learn from you. Oh, thank you. You've been a really gracious hostess. 
Thank you for listening to the People Teaching People podcast. I'm your host, Tiana Fesh. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Tiana Fesh and on my website, tianafesh.com. I would love it if you would subscribe to, rate, and review this podcast. Your feedback and support are so appreciated. See you next time where we will continue to explore all things teaching and learning together.